As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm sitting with two of my friends, Martin and Paul, the infamous Martin and Paul. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about this trend that I don't know if you guys have recently recognized it. Um, Mitchell was sending Paul and I these scholarly articles about a movement called whole child education. And then if you just search those, those words, it would bring up a lot of things. And I think we have some things to say about this trend and the way it intersects with classical education. But before we get there, have you gentlemen been reading anything recently? Martin? Oh gosh. Um, I'm in the, I'm uh, in the a third chapter of Wendell Berry's, um, new book mm. um and i'm trying to think of the title of it <laughs> the need to be whole the need, thank you the need oh. to be whole oh that, but well interesting done. interesting yeah, well correspondence done. with the topic yes um yeah uh, which is about um about racism mm. about uh other similar kinds of issues and he's responding a little bit to the whole woke thing mm-hmm. and uh i'm i'm curious to see how he addresses that of course evidence so far as he addresses it very carefully, but, mm. which he does with everything anyway. So I'll be real curious to see what he has to say about all that. Yeah. Paul, what have you been reading? Uh, well, that one's on my list. Okay. I, I, you know, recently heard that it had been published. I, I sure. would like to go read that, but actually I just start restarted Jaber Crow. Oh, wow. Mm. So not knowing that there was going to be a Wendell Berry theme today. Um, it's, it's, are you, are you reading it physically or audio? audio just because it's yep. something I can I mean I've read it before and I just wanted to I wanted to revisit it catching new things can I just say that I I, I listened to it originally me too on the audible and I, and I did not like the narrator on that um, really oh he mispronounces uh, numerous place names oh, here you okay. know in in Kentucky for our listeners who don't know uh, there's 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 city names that are European names and they get mispronounced here. So what would be Versailles in France is Versailles here, but the narrator does not know this. So he mis and, and Athens is not Athens, it's Athens. And so he mispronounces place names and it, it, it's not a Kentucky accent. He's trying to affect a Kentucky mm, accent, yeah. but I mean, it's still just such a great story. He's a good reader with pronunciation issues. Right. Uh, I think that as a narrator, it's 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 not that he's a bad reader. He just doesn't. Well, know the no, and and I, that's why I was going to say you can still read it. And if you're not from Kentucky, it's it's not a big problem. But it sure. it's not the Kentucky accent because a bad re, a bad reader. This guy's not bad, but a bad reader can ruin a book a book for mm-hmm. you. I I, mm-hmm. I always tell people if if it's not if it's not a good reader, don't do the audible because it could ruin the book for you. Martin, I had read it and really liked the reader when Thank I you. first moved to Kentucky. Because he has that southern draw, and at first you're like, "Wow, this is going to be a, a slow, a slow draw." But you realize that what he does with that brings those characters to life and the pace of life in that book. However, once he pointed out the place names, I, then I, I kind of had to go think back on on that experience. But I, I agree. I, I liked the reading. I just I didn't notice the inaccuracies at the time. And then if you if you if you've heard Wendell Berry uh, speak. You, when you read the book, you hear him. 
and and so when you hear somebody else reading it, it's, it's not even close mm. to his. Mm. He, he's got a very country farmer accent. Sure. And I that's what I hear when I read him. And and of course, most readers are not going to have that same thing. Yeah. So I finished uh, Kafka's metaphor, Metamorphosis, which mm. was a uh, pretty, especially the little section where. You know, in the book, he is a traveling salesman who's been turned into his bug. And there's a scene at one point where his father tries to squish him. <laughs> and I don't know if you both are familiar with this term Kafka-esque that mm-hmm. became popular because of the television show Breaking Bad. But basically, Excuse me. Uh, being the elder yeah, in right, the room, yeah, that far me. precedes. <laughs> well, they popularized it is what I said. No, that was very common before that. <laughs> I'm going to push back. With you. Maybe, maybe we ought to say it was That's popular, it faded, and decades. it got repopularized. I would oh, say maybe. if people of my generation yeah, heard the term Kafkaesque for the first well, time, everything was new for you. <laughs> <laughs> but it, essentially, when he lifts his foot to squish his son, it was the moment I realized where the term Kafkaesque came from. <laughs> but then I've moved on from that to $30,000 Bequest by Mark Twain. And so it's a collection of his short stories. Um, so that's that's what I'm getting into now. It's basically the exact opposite of Kafka. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> Mark Twain's wonderful. He's, I he's, think those, so too. I think he really, it, you're, when you're, when you're given a short list of great American authors, I think Twain's definitely one of them. Yeah. So returning to our topic, this topic of whole child education, Paul, when people use that term, what do you think they mean by it? And what is in the popular consciousness recently, you know, and I realized that 80 years ago when these terms were being originated, it may have had a different meaning. Um, but nowadays, what do you think people mean by the term whole child education? I think what people hear when they, when they hear whole child is we're going to focus on things other than academics. Hmm. I, I think that's the, it's a, it's a push Towards, and and I think there's a legitimacy to it. A child's worth is not dictated by their academic ability, mm-hmm. right, or um, their academic prowess, right, what they've been able to accomplish. But in a school context, I think it it, it sends the signal of we're going to focus elsewhere because we don't know that these students can rise to this academic level. Mm. So, I mean, that's when, when I hear it, those are the red flags that go up for me now. I mean, but again, I think that, I think that impulse is correct. I mean, we talk about wisdom and virtue, right? It's not just what you can think about. It's also how do you act? What do you do? Right. Who are you as a person? It seems like what Paul's saying, Martin, is that to a certain extent we know and believe and it's a part of our ethos at our schools and in our curriculum that students are not just disembodied brains. And they, that seems to be where this term is gesturing. Do you agree with that, that insight or do you think that that's not the emphasis of whole child education? Well, uh, Herman Goering famously said, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my pistol. Uh, <laughs> when I hear the term whole child, like, like a lot of terms that have been co-opted by the progressive movement mm. in education, uh, they 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 mean something different from it than we would mean mm. by it. So it's a it's a it's a problematic term, I think, in at minimum. Um, and the 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 use of it in progressive education 
modern progressive education is to is as an excuse not to teach certain things that they really need to know, like basic skills and that sort of thing. Uh, when I if I if I try to think about it in the context of classical education, what I think of is well, that's that's exactly what we're we're really doing. That mm-hmm. we're 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 really addressing the soul in in classical education. We've got the liberal arts, which are these these intellectual skills of language and math that that um that that are required to think well and then we have all of this great wisdom that has come down to us that addresses all the human issues uh that's a true whole child education yeah Uh, martin not to turn this into the martin Catherine show but i have a question for you yes um i'm taking questions now (laughs) you said that it's whole child in the progressive modern education system is an excuse to not teach basic skills. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's an intentional excuse or do you think sort of the initial push towards whole child is let's do this and we need to make sure that we're filling this need over here. And, but then, but then how it got used or how it got applied was one of where the basic skills started to drop away. Well, I mean, in public education, they're always having to make excuses because they 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 don't do well. The test scores just came out in our state, and they're they're atrocious. Uh, and and this has been happening for quite a while now. They're always having to make excuses for the, their their failures, and um and and so that term is is widely used in in. Um, in public education circles because they, they're not able to do the things that parents just at bottom need them to do. And then so, well, we're not going to just do this. We're going to do all these other glorious things. Well, you need to do this one first. Otherwise you can't do all the other glorious things. And they never, never think that far. So Paul, uh, you're the motivation behind that question is it seems like you feel like maybe it's a case of getting distracted rather than intentionally losing sight of the, the main things. Well, I, I didn't read these things that Mitchell sent us. Um, <laughs> sure, who does? <laughs> who would? <laughs> but he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> but the sort of the research being done, the impression I get by the research being done, and I mean, and I have actually read research. I just don't read read what Mitchell sends me. Um, <laughs> is that there seems to be some nuances that the research kind of people that are trying to do these studies, which Martin and I could go on at length about how these studies on education aren't replicated, blah, blah, blah. But it seems that they are trying to nuance it and say, here's like, we we actually see better academic outcomes when we do this sort of thing. But then when it, when rubber meets the road in a school, those basic skills get dropped, not because they don't think that like they if you asked them straight up they say no those are valuable we need to get that done but when the rubber meets the road that's not what they actually spend their time on or it's it's not as attractive and so the kids don't actually do it at home or they can't get any sort of homework done they can't get any sort of support outside the classroom and so it the whole child term becomes as martin says an excuse but I think one in which they would say, in an ideal world, no, we want to do it all. But what they can actually point to where they're successful is the stuff that 
everybody likes to do anyway. So it sounds like you have a specific example maybe in mind, but you were kind of speaking about it on the abstract. Could you could you make this a little more concrete so that I understand your train of logic? Well, I I don't have I, I don't have a like a very very concrete example, but I'm just thinking about schools take field trips. Would that time be better spent in a classroom where we're, you know, practicing our phonics? Yeah. Right. But it's, it, it's this idea of we need to reach the whole child. We need to give them, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying cut out recess, anything like that. I'm, you do need to fill all of those things. But in the grand scheme of a school year, if, if we can't get those basic skills done, if we're not going to teach them how to read, well, we're going to imprison them. That's the liberal arts, right? We're going to teach them to be free men and it, they need those basic skills to be free. So it sounds like you're both saying that the movement of whole child education seems to be actually minimizing the focus that should be put on the academic part of a child or the intellectual part of a child. And that's some of the damage that, that this move is doing. Do you think that's right, Martin? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you, know, if you, uh, you know, I've been, I was involved in uh, public pol- education, public policy for a number of years. And th- this was a code word. Uh, it was an excuse word because, uh, kids were not reading it at grade level there. They were not there. They're, we're not learning math skills that, that we're going to enable them to go further later on. And, and so they just, they just use that as a, as a way to, uh, to, to explain what their aspirations are to parents. And it sounds good. But, it's just a, it's a comforting phrase. But again, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the reason it's comforting is because we ought to be educating the whole absolutely. child. Absolutely. Right. And, and I, uh, you know, I should say further that, um, if I, I'm sure that Cheryl Lowe, when she was working on the Memoria press curriculum, she had uh, the whole child in mind. I mean, that's what we were mm. doing. I, I think we were really doing what, what, what a lot of public schools say they're doing. Sure. So on that point, it does seem like there's a, a general impulse in this direction that we agree with. How does the kind of emphasis on empirical data as the solution to this problem and the, the methodologies employed to solve whole child problems how do those come into the equation as we think about education? That's a, that's a very general question. Uh, I, I mean, I just, I just think we need to understand what education is and, and we need to understand its parts and we need to understand that education uh, consists of the arts and the sciences. It's the skills and the, the body of knowledge uh, that we we need to encounter the world and to appreciate it and to, um, to gain wisdom from it. And, um, and so I, I just think, I don't know where that expression whole child really fits in all that. I, I've been talking about classical education for many years and I've never had recourse to that word, to that, that expression. Let me restate it this way. If, if I was uh, a, an antagonist, but in the classical world to you guys, and I would maybe push back and say, when the scientific revolution occurred, what happened is Descartes launched a, a movement in philosophy that began to define persons as machines, as, as brains. And a school that is focused only on feeding our brain is losing the, the way that a, a child's body, their heart, their spirit 
can be cultivated. And so true classical educators should reject that notion of the person as a human, as a disembodied brain, correct? And so we're with you it, on, we're with you on so, that. So is, is the issue the whole child education that recognize that problem or the solutions that are being provided? Oh, okay. That's a, uh, that's a better question. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's, it, it boils down to the, yeah, it's, it's the solutions being provided. I think it, it's what I, we said earlier that the impulse is correct, right? If, if we talk about being body and soul, um, and if the intellect is a power of the soul, then in one sense, we're only in, in an academic education where we're only focused on the academics and we don't care what you're, how you're acting, what your character is outside of that, then we're doing a disservice to you as a human being. But, um, you know, uh, how we go about that, um, I, I guess I am, I am going to dig into this educational research shenanigans. I mean, Aristotle talks about at the beginning of the metaphysics, you kind of, you, 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 ha you can have somebody that's like an automaton who just, he does it not knowing how it works or, or really what he's doing. He's just doing it. You have sort of the, the craftsman who can do it well and, and understands a little bit more, but then you have the wise person who understands the first principles behind that thing. Right. And so the, with all this educational research, we're, we're, in a sense, seeking that wisdom, but the the way the research is being conducted seems to me to be more automatonish, right? So it's I have a narrative that I'm trying to support, so I'm going to go find research for that, and then nobody thinks nobody's taking the time to say that research is worthwhile enough for me to go replicate it. So so we're trying to do this quote unquote empirical science on human beings that fundamentally have free will. Right. And so when you put a class, uh, we put 15, maybe maximum 20 kids in a classroom, right. And a public school, you might find 30, 35 and you have that amount of free agents in the classroom to, to replicate it is something that's extremely difficult to do. And so when we're trying to make policy decisions or school-wide decisions, based on research, we, we have to be able to, to look at a given situation and say, using common sense, using first principles, how we know what human nature is, this is the better way to address those students rather than over here in North Carolina, they took a school that may be completely different. Um, you know, it could be different demographics, could be different teachers, different principles, different, you know, worldviews. But they did it over there, so we should be able to replicate it here. And and that that doesn't I, I don't think that works in a human context. It it occurs to me thinking about this this issue that that the same bunch of people in the education world <clears throat> who talk about whole child education also talk about STEM, mm. which is a very limiting, particular, utilitarian education. Right. You know, you, you, so, so people are using two, two completely opposite expressions for what they want to do. Um, because I think, you know, this, this modern utilitarian education as it, as it expresses itself in something like the STEM movement. And I think they kind of realize this because now they've added a letter, they've mm -hmm. added an A in there. Now it's STEAM 
education. <laughs> <laughs> it's so silly. Uh, and um, so, cause they realize, I think they, they must've realized, uh, yeah, really there is uh, something other than narrow technical skills that kids probably need to know. So we put arts in there, mm. the A. Uh, I mean, I, I think there, there, there is this idea b- behind everything in education that, that we, we, I mean, we say this, we say this in classical education that, that, uh, you know, Mortimer Adler would always say everybody is a philosopher and everybody is a citizen. Those are the two things everybody is. And so that's what we need to train people to do. I mean, I, I guess that was Adler's version of the whole child education. Uh, and, 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 you know, people in the education world will talk about that, but then they'll do things that are completely at odds with that, like, mm. the, like the whole STEM thing. I do think, uh, <clears throat> any, anything that narrows the scope of education to some particular thing is, is a dangerous thing. That's why I've, I've you know, kind of spoken out against uh, a lot of this STEM movement business because it's, it's saying that it's going to be sufficient to send our children out into the world with these narrow technical mm-hmm. skills with no clue uh, about history, about all these things that are, that are important for us as thinking philosophical beings and important to us as citizens. I mean, you can't, you can't have ignorant citizens and have a good government. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the founders knew this. And yet some of these things that we do to limit the scope of education are, are undermining it in the very way they foresaw. Yeah. I have one other question for you guys. Moving forward, we, we've critiqued the whole education movement, even though we, we definitely see some agreement with the impulses that lead people in that direction. What are the ways that you think Memorial Press Curriculum, Highlands Latin Schools, Online Academy, Memorial College are educating whole persons? And what are the ways that we could defend against an attack that we just care about the brain. All we care about is intellectual rigor and growth. What are the ways that we are specifically educating whole persons through our materials? Well, I, I, I was, I was wondering how this whole child thing related to, for example, character education. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is that, are we talking about the same thing or same kinds of things here? Same issues? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but I, I think that, um, I think that what, what our, what we have tried to do in our program is to present to children, you know, give children obviously the skills they need to think well and think about great things, but also to give them examples, you know, uh, great men and great women are usually, I would assume whole persons. Right. And, and even in, when you're studying history and literature, you're going to see a lot of whole persons and you're going to see a lot of partial persons actually too. Mm. And, but you're going to see them as partial there. That's, that's what great works do. They allow you to see people for who they are, maybe not the way they see themselves. And so that you, you have these models that, that you either want to imitate or that you want to, uh, to not imitate Mm. in, in a void, uh, because you're a person in a world and in a, in the world and in a society and you have to be able to operate well within it and make a contribution to it. And then hopefully live a life that by the end of it, you can look back and say that that was well lived. 
Now, I don't know what the, what the whole child people have to, to address those things, sure, but sure. I do know that what we have is a, is a program that, that attempts to prepare a student to live a good life. And if there's something better than that, I don't know what it is. Mm. I was going to voice something along the lines of what Martin said in reference to the last podcast we recorded on famous men, mm. right? If you want to, if, if you want to talk about heroes and models, but I was also thinking about when I first uh, jumped over to the online academy and there was a mother who called me and she, she told me, I think she had an older child who had gone through classical education, had graduated and had uh, gone to Hillsdale. And she was sort of like that. That's my goal, but I have this next child and he, he may never go to college. He wants, you know, I, I expect him to, you know, they were living out in a rural area. So I expect him to be a farmer, but I want to get him the best liberal arts education I can in high school. So we, we work together to, to put together a high school program for him that was in line with what, what he was going to be able to accomplish pushing him as far as we could in the time that we had knowing that, you know, at the same time he was probably going to be out with his uncle on the tractor, you know, for afternoons and doing a whole bunch of different things in order to be growing that whole side of him as well, not just the book side. Right. And so I think when it comes down to the way we, you know, you look at HLS and they've got the drama troupe and they've got sports and, you know, it's, it's, all balanced, mm-hmm. right? Nothing is nothing is overtaking another, right? I've been at schools where you walk in at 8 a.m. You're like, oh, where's the third of the school? Well, we had a football game last night and they were told they didn't have to come until 9.30, right? That doesn't happen at Highlands, right? Those things those things have to be in a balance. But, um, you know, just taking all of that into consideration and not just, well, we go for academic rigor and so you have to drop everything else you're doing in order to make this happen. It seems like a key part of what we're doing is actually restraint, right? And that the whole child education movement seems to kind of go towards the things that aren't being done. Whereas what we're doing or encouraging people to do is spend four days at school instead of five. Mm -hmm. Because that way your child has time to do the things that they can and should be doing outside of it. Or One day online. Or do <laughs> one day online or do be a homeschool family. If that's the best fit for your family with this, these materials or a hybrid program, there are ways to do this that show restraint that give families and individuals the opportunity to meet the needs of their particular child. Right. And, and I, I've heard arguments, uh, economic arguments of that the school day needs to be lengthened so that both parents can work mm. eight to five at least. And they, they won't be held back in their career because they don't have to go pick up their kids kind of thing. And that, that's a, that's a whole aspect of society where we're looking at school more as a daycare than as something that is serving a particular purpose. And what you're talking about with restraint is we're saying, no, we, we serve a particular purpose here and the family needs time in order to be able to accomplish the other things that the school can't. Sure. And can I say too, before we totally leave, if we're going to leave this whole issue of whole child education, 
we're, we're really neophiliacs. Uh, we love the new. We mm-hmm. love anything that's trendy. By we, we you mean society. I mean, anybody who has anything to do with education. I mean, education always, this is, it's, it's the, probably the worst place for, um, you know, innovations, good and bad. And, and the newest thing that comes along becomes all the rage. And I had not heard about this thing. I guess it sounds like many people in our audience do. I've, this is the first time I've heard of it, but I've, I've been around for a while now <laughs> and there, there are so many fads and they come along and, 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 and two years down the road, they're gone and something new takes their place. And I, I think that that's one of the benefits of classical education. So we're not looking for the newest thing. We're looking for the best thing. Mm. And most of the best things have already been done and tried and proven themselves. And so that's, that's what we try to focus on here is are, are the, the older things that have worked that we don't need to reinvent mm. and we don't need to have some new procedure that some person at a, at a, at a university has cooked up in an ivory tower somewhere. It, it, this is education is really not that complicated. It's really pretty straightforward and people have done it well before. And mm. we need to, we need to do that same thing. It seems like what you're describing is an epistemological stance that says the old, the trusted, those are the things that I'm going to lean on to meet needs or to encourage people to lean on to meet their needs rather than the new or the empirically proven or the, the currently popular in peer reviewed articles. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't, were you going to, I'm sorry. Were you gonna, were you I was just looking at Paul as he, oh, okay. oh, as no. he shook his head I, in, in maybe disagreement. No, I, I, I don't disagree. I, that, but I sort of feel like that's a horse we've beat um, time and time again on this podcast. You know, when you but, trust the old tried and true, you say the same thing. <laughs> fairly <laughs> often. <Okay>. Fair point. <laughs> I, but but the thought going through my mind as Martin was talking about just the love of the new was the the definition of an insane person is somebody trying to do the same thing again and again and expecting a different result, mm-hmm. right? And but I think that's what happens in, in education is we say, oh, we're going to try this. And then 20 years later, we look back, we go, that didn't work, but we're going to try it again. And this time it's going to work because we're going to have better implementation. We're going to do this or that or the other. Well, we have, a, we, we have something that worked for over two millennia. Let's go do that. Yeah. And it, it, it's hard for schools to do because they, they, they're, there is more promotion that goes on in the education world than any other place I've ever seen there. And they're always coming up with some new approach that's going to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything down to like school calendars. I remember, and this has probably been 20 years ago now, it was school calendar. This was going to change. We're going to change from the traditional calendar, which was based on this agrarian culture. It's actually not true. Uh, and, and we're going to have like three uh, breaks instead of one big long summer break when, we're not going to have one big long summer break because everyone's going to forget everything. We're going to have three breaks so they can forget it three times. Uh, is really what ended up happening, but that that was going to solve the problem. So it's always some new thing that solving a pro, solving a problem that the last new thing we had didn't solve, and we just keep doing it again and again. And instead of that approach, I I, I think that you know we just we we need to go back and see what actually did work and do that. Mm. You said that the traditional school calendar was not built on an agrarian lifestyle. Can you defend that? Well, I, I if you go back and you look at the research on it, I I, I looked what, at it one time. I don't I don't I don't remember. I just remember that that uh, 
I mean, you, I think Jacques Barzan talks about this, and he talks about how that that actually was not the reason that they had the 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 calendars. It wasn't. If you think about it, I'm I'm thinking, why would you why would you have a break? Why would you have your break in the winter? I mean, there's far better ways of doing agriculture. I mean, if you if you go back and you look at the way schools were doing were doing things, um, they would just not send their kids to school when they needed to farm. Well, that's true. That's what they do. Okay. Okay. It seems like people who are advocating for whole child education are tapping into the need that we all have for human flourishing, right? For the good life. But are they going about it the right way is the question. Paul, do you think that they are gesturing towards human flourishing? And Martin, do you think that the term human flourishing is overused? Because you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> Paul. Are, are, oh, oh, I'm taking the first question. Okay. Interestingly enough, I think the idea of whole child, I, I would almost call it more analogous mm. uh, because, you, I mean, look at the terms. We're, we're, still talking about, we're still talking about the child. We're not talking about full human potential, right? The good life, human flourishing, which which those, those terms pack more of uh, connotations of we're talking about a fully formed responsible adult who has hopefully been liberally educated who can think for themselves and uh and live according to their nature uh and so and which includes their purpose and if if we're only looking at the the child then we're not actually prepping them for that full experience of the good life and when you say looking at the child you mean just the child as a child, you're thinking about the child as a full person over time as mm -hmm. an adult. Right. Yeah. Martin, what do you think about the concept of human flourishing? Well, like, like uh, the whole child thing, we already have terms for this and we don't, we don't need the newest. Uh, and I, not that human flourishing is the newest thing, but it, I remember when it came into usage 20, 30 years ago and it became, you know, and, and we had to talk about the Greek term eudaimonia and all the time. things there. What is wrong with happiness? Because that's what it means. Why can't we just say happy and go on with, with, with our, our lives? Did this, did this really come into vogue or is it like Kafka-esque well, that, it, that it, you were just young at that it, point it, it, and it you hadn't heard vogue, it before? It came into vogue in philosophical discussions like Alistair McIntyre right. and this sort of thing. Uh, and, and, and it's, which is fine. And it gave us a better understanding of what happiness was, but there's nothing wrong with the term happiness. And, and there's nothing wrong with saying that, uh, education, if done the right way, prepares us to lead happy lives. And, sure. and I, I don't, I don't know that we need fancy terms to do that, but obviously, yeah, that's a good thing. Uh, we, and we need to be able to say that, that education is to help us lead a happy life. The truest conservative, a man who wants to recover the meaning of happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys for this conversation. I've enjoyed it. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show, be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. 
and we'll see you next time.